0: Amen. Would you bow with me and pray as we prepare to open God's word? Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful and full. Your grace is enough for us. It's enough to save us. It's enough to sustain us through the ups and downs of life. It's enough to cleanse us, to comfort us. Lord, we come as a needy people, but a needy people who have found satisfaction in Jesus. Lord, we come to you in faith today to worship you and praise you for who you are, but also we come hungry to be filled, to give us more of Christ today, Lord, we pray. So speak to us through your spirit, nourish our faith, comfort our souls, sanctify us, Lord, that we might reflect your glory in this world. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Welcome this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. It's always good to be together on Sunday. Um, I'm thankful we've had our kids in with us for Sunday morning worship uh, all of this year, which has really been wonderful. And we encourage you to keep your kids in if you so choose. We think that is a good thing. Uh, We do have a nursery that just started up in the last couple weeks. So if you do have an infant and you want to take advantage of that, you are welcome to. You don't have to. And we're hoping in March to, um, to begin, once again, our children's church. We have a preschool class. Uh, we usually would keep the, the three- and four-year-olds, some of the five-year-olds, in here with us during worship, and then we send them out during the sermon um, to receive some teaching uh, during the sermon. So that's hopefully going to be starting up in March, and we encourage you all to take advantage of that if you so choose. And we're also going to be starting um, uh, a new Sunday school class for our uh, middle school and high school youth. So it's been sort of a streamlined, limited year because of uh, both things going on with COVID and our limitations with facilities. But the building is opening up and we are ready to start up some of those things. So we're excited to make you all aware of that. Uh, But I want to turn your attention now to Exodus chapter 17. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read uh, the scripture in your hearing, and I invite you to follow along. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or Not. If you are someone who reads scripture, then what you will discover is that there's a lot of different themes that scripture touches on. There's many different topics, different lessons that we learn, but from front to back, from Genesis to Revelation, one of the things that emerges as most important for us is the necessity of faith. Trusting God, believing his word, resting in his promises. The Bible teaches us that there is no salvation apart from faith. It's by grace, through faith, that we enter into God's family and receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But listen, faith is not just the front door for Christianity. Faith is more like the air that we breathe along the way. You know, we often refer to Christians as believers, and I think that's fitting We're not just those who simply have believed. We are those who are believing. We believe. And this is a daily necessity faith, trusting in God. That is the primary way that we are to relate to God. And we see this all throughout the scripture. Will Adam and Eve believe God's word in the garden and trust that he is good? Will Noah believe God's word about the coming flood and build an ark? Will Abraham believe God's word and trust God enough to leave his homeland and even then to put his only son on the altar? And then we come to Exodus. Will Israel believe God's word and follow his spokesman Moses in the wilderness? If you've been with us over the last couple weeks, you know that this is the third straight week that we've dealt with this nearly identical theme, trusting God to provide in the wilderness. The water at Mara, which we saw at the end of chapter 15, was bitter, and they couldn't drink it. There was no food for them in the wilderness of sin, and they hungered. Now they come to Rephidim, and once again, there is no water. And maybe you're starting to ask yourself, why do these people keep getting into this same situation? Well, as we've been pointing out, God is testing their faith. This is about faith. And God is also, even as he tests them and exposes their weakness and their need, he's also providing for them. He's proving his goodness and power in order to strengthen their faith. This is what the people needed. They needed to know God for who he was and to come to trust him. And that's what we need as well. This is here for our instruction. I mentioned in our newcomer class this morning that we do expository preaching here. And what that means is that it's pretty easy for me to pick what to preach on. It's whatever's the next passage in the book we're studying. That's sort of the, you know, the text for the day. But there's still a decision as far as how much to cover each week. And I'll be honest, I thought about taking all three of these stories and doing one sermon. God tra- changes the bitter water to fresh at Marah. He provides bread from heaven in the wilderness. And then here he provides water from the rock because Those could be three points of the same sermon, because all three of those stories expose grumbling as sin. All three of those stories show God to be a faithful provider. All three of these stories touch on the reality that crisis is a test for us. And so while the details vary slightly, they all drive home really the same point. So we really could have taken them all together as one message. That wouldn't have been wrong. But I decided to take each one on their own and to do three separate sermons. And for this reason, these people needed repetition in order to learn this lesson. And we do too. The people of Israel didn't get it the first time. They needed to hear it again, to see it again, to see God work again. In the necessity of faith for these people and for us, the importance of trusting God and believing his word, that is of such deep importance and significance for us that it demands careful and repeated attention. You know, there's a real challenge before us right now just as people. I mean, as as humans, we are experiencing a lot of uncertainties regarding things like our physical health. Um, We've always been vulnerable, but COVID-19 has helped us to realize how frail and vulnerable we actually are. As Americans, we're facing uncertainties, our nation's in turmoil, and there are significant changes that are taking place. And as Christians, we are facing uncertainties. Are we going to be free to worship? Will we be increasingly regarded as hateful? Will we be seen as an obstacle to be eliminated as society marches towards progress? And then there's just the reality of life that we all deal with. I mean, in this church, this week, there are those among us who have dealt with tragedy, with death, with cancer, with heart attacks, with financial pressures, with broken relationships. So we all face times of testing. We all face crisis. I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but how many of you would claim that you've learned all there is to learn about trusting God and that you don't need to hear again that God is faithful to provide for his people. Would any of you would claim that? I, I wouldn't. I don't think that any of us would probably claim that our faith is not in need of further strengthening. And so I know this text feels like deja vu a little bit. If you've been here the last two weeks, I'm totally okay with that. And I hope you are as well. I think that's a good thing because this is what we need to hear today. We need to hear the same thing we heard last week and the same thing we heard the week before, that God tests his people to expose their need and to strengthen their faith. We need to hear once again that God is trustworthy, that he promises to be with us and provide for us. We need to hear that God desires faith and obedience from us as he leads us through this dangerous journey through the wilderness of the world towards the promised land. So I want to make three observations from this story. And these observations are intended to teach us, to help us to think about the importance of trusting God. And the first observation is this, those with a hard heart protest against God in times of crisis. Those who have a hard heart protest against God in times of crisis. We see this in verses two through four and verse seven. The crisis is that there's no water for the people to drink in verse one. So what do they do? They quarrel with Moses and say, give us water to drink. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses tells God in verse 4 that the people are actually ready to stone him. And verse 7 says that they're questioning God saying, is the Lord among us or not? So I want you to observe how these people respond to crisis. They don't have water to drink. And this is a life and death issue. And what they do, according to verse 2, is quarrel. Verse 3 says they grumble. Verse 7 says they test God. And really, this word quarrel that we find here in in verse 2, it's not just meaning that they're arguing with Moses. It can mean that, but this word can signify something different as well. It's probably better translated as a protest really. This is not a back and forth with Moses. This is a riot. Now consider all the things that we've witnessed this year in our own nation. We have seen on screens, I don't think any of you were in Kenosha. I don't know how many were in Washington, D.C., but we've seen at least on the television screen or on your smartphone that a crowd that's angry can quickly grow violent, and that's exactly what's happening here. These people are, are animated by what they perceive to be a huge problem, that Moses, and by extension, God, has led them out here to kill them. And they are revolting, angry crowd, out of control. That's why Moses says, they're about to stone me. Stoning is execution. They're about to kill me for treason against the nation. This is an insurrection against God's appointed leader, Moses. Now, I want you to consider what this behavior shows about their heart It shows, first of all, that they resent God's providential leading. Look at verse 1. Why are they out here? All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Why? According to the commandment of God. God had led them here. And they resent his providential leading. Their their heart is demanding God's provision. Verse 2, they say, give it to us now. Demanding. Demanding. That God prove himself to them once again. This reminds me of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. If you jump off the temple, prove yourself to be the son of God in this way. If you're really the son of God, jump off the temple and the angels will catch you. They won't let you dash your foot against the stone. Prove it. Testing God. That's what they're doing here. Testing God. Demanding his provision. They're doubting his goodness. They say in verse 3, you brought us out here to die. They don't believe that God is good and that he loves them. And they're turning on God's appointed leader. They're ready to stone him in verse 4. And really, verse 7 shows us they're questioning whether God is really with them. Is the Lord among us, verse 7, or not? That's where their heart is. And it's ugly. Philip Ryken points out, these people are tired of being tested. They want to ask questions, not answer them. So they charge God with breaking his covenant that's a serious charge to accuse God of not keeping his covenant promises to bless them and make them a great nation and bring them into the promised land they're accusing God of breaking his covenant now consider everything that God has done for them he's rescued them from Egypt he's delivered them by virtue of the plagues and parting the Red Sea he's already provided for them in amazing ways time and time again here in the desert And God did these things, why? So that they would know that he is the Lord. Remember, we see that that phrase over and over again. God does things so that everyone will know that he is the Lord. Such knowledge should have produced fear of God. Everything they have seen should have produced fear, yet they dishonor him. Such knowledge of God should have produced trust. If God can do all this for us, surely he can provide water again. He's already done it once before. Yet, they do not trust him. They do not believe his promises. Such knowledge of the Lord should have produced a profound gratitude for God's grace towards them. And God's mercy upon them. Yet, these people are oblivious and acting entitled. Demanding that God do for them what they demand. This is nothing less, friends, than a hard heart. It's a hard heart. This is the sin of unbelief. It's unbelief. They are protesting not against Moses, but against God. They are revolting not against Moses, but against God, and accusing him in the midst of their crisis. Those who have a hard heart will protest against God when crisis arises. That's a sinful response. But how does Moses respond to this? Well, a second observation is this. Those who have a soft heart will appeal to God in times of crisis verse four, Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people, with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. There's three aspects of Moses's response here that stand out to me. And very simply, very obviously, he cries out to God. He turns to the Lord, not against the Lord, like the people. They're turning against him. Moses turns to him. And this is a spiritually sane expression of faith. Not unbelief. Moses had, yes, at first appealed to the people in verse 2, but his words had little effect. So he cries out to the Lord. Moses knows that he needs God. Moses knows that he cannot free slaves from Egypt. He can't part the sea. He can't turn the salt water into fresh. Moses can't provide bread from heaven, but he knows who can. And so he goes to him, he turns to the Lord. And not only does Moses cry out to God, but secondly, he identifies not with his people, but as God's servant. And notice the wording of his plea here. Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? This people. Rather than take their side, rather than join up with the mob in accusing God. He really distances himself from the people. And this is interesting to me because previously Moses had strongly uh, identified with the nation of Israel in their suffering. Even though he grew up in the palace and had everything at his disposal in Egypt, he went out to see the suffering of his people and chose to suffer with them. So he had identified with them. And one day in the future in chapter 32, he would even attempt to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice in their place. When they rebelled and worshiped the golden calf, he said, Lord, kill me. In in their place. God didn't take him up on his offer. But here, Moses doesn't identify with them. Instead, he sides with God. He says, in essence, God, I am your servant. I am your spokesman. But what do I do with these people? You know, there's been a massive culture shift in our world over the last decade plus. Here in America, we used to be a very highly individualistic society. And in many ways, we still can be. But group identity has become a very powerful force in our nation. And we've been conditioned to think of people according to their uh, economic class, their gender, their ethnicity. And identity politics and that kind of mentality has really become the norm. And people are expected to side with their own. And if you don't, you're a traitor. In fact, that's why they were about to stone Moses. They viewed him as a traitor. He wasn't on their side. He was leading them out here to die. So what happens when your group is the one in rebellion against God? Whose side are you going to be on? Your party? Your people? Your team? Will you identify with them or with God? Moses chooses not to side with his people. He refers to them as this people. And he identifies, continues to embrace his identity, his posture as a servant of God. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Now keep in mind, what got Moses into this mess? Being God's servant, saying what God told him to say, doing what God wanted him to do. He didn't sign up for this or ask for this. But rather than step down, rather than switch sides, he continues in that divinely appointed role that God has for him. And he goes in prayer to the Lord on behalf of these sinful, rebellious people even though at that moment he was in their crosshairs. That's remarkable to me. And then what else I see here in Moses' cry is that while the people are demanding water, what is it that Moses asks for? Not water. He asks for a word from God. He seeks instruction He knows that God keeps his promises. He knows that God has a plan. He knows God will provide, so he seeks a word from God. God, speak to me. Instruct me. Tell me what it is that you want me to do. This same Moses would later write this in Deuteronomy 8. God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is not a perfect man. In fact, we can probably find a twinge of grumbling in his heart here. When he's talking about this people, it's sort of like, you know, husbands, maybe you've had your wife come up to you. Do you know what your son did today while you were at work? You know, oh, so he's my son now. Okay. Like, yeah, there's probably some grumbling in Moses' heart. He's not perfect here. And I'm not trying to say he is. And again, he's probably subtly inferring his own protest. I didn't ask to lead these people. It's not my fault. Um, But at the same time, Moses stands in stark contrast to these people. Because they cry out against God. Moses cries out to God. They are united in their rebellion. But he stands alone as God's servant. They demand water and he seeks the word of the Lord. So this is a different kind of heart that we see in Moses. Not a perfect heart, but it is a heart that is turned towards God. Our hearts aren't perfect. We're going to get some things wrong. Our attitude may struggle at times. We may have questions and frustrations, but the heart that is soft will turn to God with those questions, with those frustrations, and cry out to him. And that's what we see here with Moses. Moses. So, those with a hard heart will protest against God in times of crisis. Those with a soft heart will appeal to God in times of crisis. There's a third observation, and this is the best part because it's not about the people and it's not about Moses, it's about God. Those, number three, who are loved by God, experience his presence and provision in times of crisis. Those who are loved by God, the recipients of his grace, those to whom he has given his promises, will experience his presence and provision in times of crisis. Verse five, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. What's amazing to me is that both the hard-hearted people and the soft-hearted Moses, they both experience God's gracious provision. Moses will not be stoned to death. The people will not die of thirst. Why? Because God is about to act. And he tells Moses exactly what to do and what will happen. He says, gather up the elders. He wants witnesses. This is really like a formal response to the the kangaroo court that they've set up here with Moses on trial. God desires that they would see. He's going to produce formal evidence so that they, they would know that he is the Lord, that he is with them, and that he's faithful to his covenant. He tells Moses, take your staff. They need to see that it's my power at work. This is the same staff with which he struck the Nile. God's power, in a sense, flowed through this staff to perform great acts of judgment. Great manifestations of power. This was the same staff that turned into a snake when Moses threw it on the ground. The same staff that was stretched over the Red Sea as it parted and as it collapsed. So he says, take your staff so they know it's me who's working. And then he gives Moses this promise, a promise of personal presence. He says in verse 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. More than water, more than answers, more than anything else, what Moses needed and what the people needed was for God to be with them. And God says, I will stand before you. Yes, Moses, I see what's going on. I see the people. I know their hard hearts. I know the water situation. And I'm going to be with you. This would have been so assuring for Moses. Remember, back in chapter 3, verse 12, as Moses is meeting God, on the mountain, speaking with this bush that burns yet is not consumed, he said, I will be with you. And this is God repeating that promise again. I'm still going to be with you, Moses. And then he calls Moses to a unique action. He says, strike the rock. Strike the rock. It's often in scripture that God chooses unique actions to symbolize what it is that he's doing. We see this all the time. God doesn't need to use rocks or staffs, but he's always showing us something. And when he tells Moses to strike the rock, this is an act of violence and grace. I want you to think about that. Strike the rock. This is an act of violence. The staff that brought judgment upon Egypt in the plagues and at the Red Sea, that same staff here, there is judgment implied as he strikes the rock. But there's grace because he's not striking the people. That's what you might expect. As Moses goes before the Lord and as the people are crying out, really rebelling against God, God tells Moses, get the elders, go ahead of the people, everybody draw near, and I'm about to do something. You almost expect, okay, God's judgment is going to fall on them. There's going to be a striking of the people with plague or illness or fire from heaven or something. But no, God doesn't strike the people. He tells Moses, strike the rock, and water is provided. Psalm 78:15 says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. This isn't a little trickle. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Psalm 105 also commemorates this event, saying, He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. This is grace. Grace for the hard-hearted and for Moses alike. Why? Why would God respond this way? Because he is faithful to his promise. Psalm 105 tells us, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Those who have received the promises of God, those who are loved by him, can expect to experience his grace in times of crisis. The people didn't deserve it. They deserve judgment. They deserve to be struck, but they were not. That is grace. Moses probably deserves some correction as well. Yet God protects him, provides for him, blesses him. God loves these people and provides abundantly for them. So that's something about the staff, but why a, a rock? Well, the word for rock here is not talking about just a stone, something you could pick up, not even a a boulder. The word is Petra, not Petros. It signifies a, a cliff or a large stone slab. It's something that, like Jesus talked about, you could build a house on, okay? This is something that you could carve a tomb out of. It's of significant size. And this particular rock is at Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is associated with Sinai. They have drawn near to the same mountain range. Where Moses talked with God at the burning bush. So, this rock is significant. They've come to the region of Sinai. This is where God meets with his people. And this rock signifies God's presence. God had told Moses, I will stand before you on the rock. The imagery of, of rock being associated with God is found often throughout the scripture. Genesis forty nine twenty four in the blessing of Jacob, he refers to God as the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Isaiah 30, verse 29 says, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Psalm 18 two says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 95 one says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The God is referred to as a rock. His presence here is signified by the rock manifested at the rock. And and as we see this theme of God being our rock repeated throughout scripture, what this shows us is that God's provision for his people from the rock, that's not just a random or a one-time event. It actually represents his ongoing present care for his people in all places, at all times. The God who is with us is our rock. The God who is with us will provide for us just like he did for these people. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says this. He makes a parallel between the church today and the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, referring to that pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness. They all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's an amazing statement for Paul to equate God's provision for the people of Israel at the rock with God's provision for us through Christ. I don't think Paul is saying that the rock at Horeb was somehow Jesus in disguise, that he had taken on the form of a rock. I think he's pointing out the parallel here between our experience and theirs. Ancient Israel experienced a great deliverance from bondage by the power of God as he brought them through the Red Sea. We, too, have been rescued from slavery, brought from death to life through Jesus. Ancient Israel was baptized into Moses, meaning that he was their representative before God. He was the one who spoke to God on their behalf and spoke to them to reveal God's will. So we, too, have a corporate representative, don't we? One who represents us to God and one who has revealed the Father to us, Jesus Christ. And we are baptized into him, united with him through faith. And ancient Israel was sustained in the wilderness, not by natural means, but by supernatural provision. Likewise, our salvation comes not from natural means, not our good works, not by keeping the law, not by our physical birth. No, our salvation comes through a divine source as we partake of the body and blood of Christ. Through faith, he is ours, and we have life in him. The rock was Christ, meaning that their source of provision and life in the desert was the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the one who stood before Moses at the rock. This is who is with them, and Christ is also with us. You may not have a big rock in your backyard that can produce water, Or maybe a new transmission for your vehicle. Or maybe, you know, whatever it may be that you're in need of. But we do have Christ. And there's an amazing parallel between the striking of the rock, what God did for the people here at Horeb, and the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Consider here that there's an angry mob who wants to strike down Moses. And God could have struck them. But instead, the blow fell upon the rock. The place where God stood he directs the blow of judgment not towards them but towards himself consider now the cross there too an angry mob brings false accusations against none other than God's very representative the angry mob there had manifested a hardness of heart and what happened did God strike them no no In fact, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Instead, the rock was struck. Jesus Christ absorbed the blow, standing before men and before God. And the result of Christ being struck, the result of the lamb being slain, the result of God's son being crushed, is a river of life for all who will believe You know, the water flowing from the rock that day in the wilderness, it answered their deepest questions. Yes, God was with them. No, God had not brought them out here to die. Yes, God was going to keep his promise. He was going to be faithful to his covenant purposes. And yes, his power is sufficient to provide for their every need. So too, the cross must answer our deepest questions about God. The cross, likewise, must assure us of God's faithfulness to provide his love for us. The cross tells us that God's saving purpose will not be abandoned, that his power is able to save, and that God has secured life for us, and he's done it by means of his own sacrificial death. You know, there's a Jewish legend that I think Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians, that this rock sort of followed them throughout their 40 years of wandering. That the rock became a sort of portable well that they could bring with them and followed them. And I don't think Paul saying that literally happened. But what is true is that God provided for his people every day for 40 years. They had the water they needed, the bread from heaven. God met their need every day. Meals, water, protection, provision, you name it. And this is really such a fitting metaphor for the ongoing ministry of Christ to us. Not only was Jesus struck at the cross to provide for us life, but Jesus promises to be with us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And everything that you need, everything that I need, comes to us through Christ. He is our source of life. And as we sang this morning, that is our hope in life and death. It's Christ alone. You know, times of testing, we're all going to face them. And what's going to happen is those tests, those trials will expose the condition of our hearts. It will show whether we have a hard heart, whether we are proud, whether we are fixated on material needs and the things of the, Lord, or things of the world. It'll show if we're insensitive to God's word and ignoring his purposes for us. Or those trials, those times of testing will expose a soft heart and it will cause us to turn to the Lord, to seek him, to hang upon his every word rather than accuse him. Those with a soft heart will cry out, desiring God's will and his provision and his direction. Which one are you? These kinds of stories we've been talking about in Exodus, they really are convicting and they're meant to be. For three weeks, we focused on God's goodness, his faithfulness to provide. We've rehearsed the truth that he cares for his people and he always keeps his promises. So have we learned that lesson? Israel's hard-hearted rebellion is mentioned over and over again in scripture as a warning to us, a warning to those who know better, those who have seen, those who have heard, Psalm 95, verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a warning for those who know, for those who have heard, for those who have seen, that to choose not to trust God and refuse to believe him incurs judgment. The author of Hebrews comments on this psalm. Hebrews 3 verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, so we see that they were unable to enter. Why? The author of Hebrews tells us. Because of unbelief. For those who have a hard heart, there's only two options. You can turn and you can repent and you can experience God's gracious restoration today. Today, do not harden your heart. The call comes. Or you can choose to persist in unbelief. And and you will experience, therefore, his judgment. Let me ask you this question. Is it possible that we don't take the sin of grumbling seriously enough? We've talked about it now for three weeks. Complaining, grumbling. Is it possible that perhaps we need to evaluate that in our own hearts? Is it possible that perhaps maybe you have resented God's providential leading in your life the way that Israel did? Is it possible that maybe you've been demanding of God's provision Perhaps you've doubted his goodness. Maybe you've been resistant to the spiritual leadership that God has put in your life. Have you refused to acknowledge that God is indeed with you? If so, then please hear this warning. I'm trying to obey that command from Hebrews to exhort one another today as long as it is called today. If your heart is hard before the Lord, then you need to repent of your unbelief and humble yourself today before him. Confess your sin and turn away from it to receive God's mercy. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you today, then here is how scripture tells you you must respond. First of all, you need to honestly confess your sin before the Lord. Recognize and admit what your grumbling is. Recognize and admit that you have engaged in sinful unbelief, and you need to repent from it that means you must denounce such behavior as sin turn away from it forsake it make war against it don't make excuses for your doubts and your protests against god and your anger towards him don't make don't try to justify your unbelief refuse to be at peace with the sin that is in your heart and then believe rest in the promise of forgiveness and cleansing This God tells us that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, including hardness of heart and unbelief. Look in faith today to Christ, the one who provides for your needs, including your need for forgiveness and cleansing and change. Come to him in humility and faith, and he will cleanse you. He will purify you. He will change you. You know, this text convicts us, but it also gives us a lot of assurance, doesn't it, as believers. Christian, know this. Just as God provided water in the wilderness from the rock, so he provides for us all we need through Christ. Just as the rock was struck to provide life for them, Christ has been struck to provide life for us. Just as God was with them there at the rock, he will also be with us. As his spirit dwells within us, we serve a faithful God, We serve a God who keeps his promises. We serve a powerful God, one who is able to provide streams of water in the desert. You think he can handle our needs? He can. We serve a gracious God, one who does not direct the blow of judgment towards us, but has absorbed it himself at the cross so that we might receive his merciful provision. Since this is true, we can go wherever he leads, can't we? Since this is true, we can face whatever obstacles may arrive. Since this is true, let's trust him. Let's believe him and humble ourselves before him and look to him in faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, your ways are mysterious and wonderful to us. It's amazing that you would respond to these people who are so hard-hearted with such mercy. Yet as we read these texts, it's like looking in the mirror because we recognize our own hardness of heart, our slowness to believe everything you've promised, our, our hesitancy to trust you fully for everything. Lord, we pray for forgiveness and confess our need. We thank you for the cleansing that comes from Christ. We thank you for directing the blow of judgment to the cross. Instead of towards us, though we were fully deserving. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you are faithful to provide. And Lord, there are many different crises that people are facing in this church today. Different fears, different sorrows, different needs. And Lord, we are unable to just automatically meet all our own needs. Even we as the church, as much as we want to help each other, we can't provide it. But Lord, you can. You can. You are the source of comfort. You are the source of provision. You are the source of courage. You are the source of healing. You are the source of hope. You are the source of grace, grace upon grace, like the daily manna that fell from heaven each day to meet their need. And so, Lord, we look to you. Our eyes are on you. Like Moses, we come to you and ask, what is it that you would have us to do? And we stand desiring to obey all that you command and fully expecting that you are going to provide and do everything that you said you would do. Lord, times of testing have tried our faith and exposed need, but we know you also bring these challenges along to strengthen us. So God, strengthen this church, strengthen each person in this church that we might believe in you fully, trust in you completely. Lord, make us who you want us to be. And Lord, I pray especially for those who may have a hard heart today. They have not yet fully given their their soul, their life to you in faith, They're holding back. They're unsure if they should really put all their eggs in this basket called the gospel. They're unsure if they should completely surrender themselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would soften hard hearts. I pray that those people today, perhaps in our midst, perhaps watching at home, wherever they may be, maybe they're hearing this later, God, I pray that you would change the condition of their heart by your grace. You were able to do that. You've done it for so many of us. We didn't come to you because we were wiser, because we were more noble, because of any virtue in us. You simply chose to pour out grace. And so, God, we ask that you do it again. Save sinners, change hearts, and bring us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.